We're going to be looking in the Gospel of Mark today, Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're continuing on in our series of messages. I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We're doing this just to kind of try to reorient ourselves to the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And in the world that we're living in, so rapidly changing, so many challenges, uh, it does us a lot of good to look at the unchanging truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Today we're in Mark chapter 7 and verse 7 in a message I call the problem of vain worship. Hypocrites, Jesus said. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Looking here in a passage where Jesus warned about the possibility of vain worship, the word vain means meaningless, insignificant, or without purpose. Maybe difficult for us to imagine, but it is possible for our worship of God to be in vain, to be completely without effect. That's what Jesus said. And I say completely because we need to remember that worship at its very heart, the very core of worship, is to please God. So that our worship is about Him and not about us. It is not designed to make us feel good. Now, a lot of worship does that. Uh, it can be exciting to us. It can stimulate us emotionally. Worship can make us feel a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction. Uh, much like we sit out with a to-do list. I've got laundry to do, check. I've got to go to the bank, check. Pay the bills, check. Go to church, check. And we look at that fulfilled list. I've got this done, this done, this done, this done. And we get a sense of fulfillment then uh, that comes to us. So sometimes it is emotionally stirring when we worship. Sometimes it gives us a sense of fulfillment. We fulfilled our obligations. But either way, if all worship does is please me and give me a sense of fulfillment, it has had no effect at all. Jesus didn't say it's mostly in vain. He said it is in vain. That is, it is meaningless because worship that doesn't honor and glorify God has no meaning at all, no effect that God acknowledges. Some years ago, I pastored at the Calvary Baptist Church in Hazen, a great, glorious time in my life. Uh, our church was located right on Highway 70, right in downtown. And if you got off I-40 and came to Hazen, it was almost one of the first things that you saw. And as a result of that, I had a constant stream of people who would get off of I-40 and come and knock on our church door needing help. Uh, it was just a constant thing. Almost every day, uh, if I was in the office, sometimes two or three people, but at least one, would stop by needing help. I'll never forget one guy who came up, and I immediately I learned to kind of read people when you do this all the time. And I, I noticed quickly something was wrong with this fella. And uh, so I asked him, he asked me for help trying to get where you're going. So I said, well, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to Dallas. 
And so I, I asked him then, well, fine, well, what city are you coming from? He said, Little Rock. Now, if you're in Hazen and you left Little Rock going to Dallas, you're going the wrong way. In fact, you can't go anymore the wrong way because Dallas, you go west on I-30 and he was going east on I-40. I mean, exactly the opposite of what way you go. So, as I almost always did, but especially if I sensed something was amiss, it was a good thing because the police station was just two doors down past the post office. So I said, you know, we might be able to help you, but we got to go down to the police station first. Uh, of course, he got in his car and left after that. Most He didn't want to go see the police. You see, when worship becomes something that is about me, instead of being about God, when worship turns into something that we're thinking about what I like or what it does for me, as opposed to it being something that honors God... We are going completely opposite. 180 degrees opposite with our worship of the direction that it's supposed to go. Worship in both the Old and the New Testament described primarily an act of bowing down where they got on their knees and lowered their head Or sometimes they would even go prostrate and put their face on the ground and stretch out their hands in front of someone. It is a supreme act of devotion, you see, to get down on your knees and bow your head. Only in America could we take an act that means then to highly revere, to honor to devote yourself to someone or show devotion for someone or something. Only in America could we take an act like that and turn it into a protest or a sign of rebellion and resistance. But that's kind of what's going on in our nation today. The Old Testament required the Jews to take this very seriously. In fact, they were expressly forbidden to bow down to anyone or anything except to God. And I can say boldly to you this morning without fear of contradiction that only God is worthy of our worship. And He is worthy of our worship and our adoration. The original meaning of worship expanded along the way so that it not only referred to the bowing of the knee and to prostrating ourselves then before someone, uh, it also included other acts of religious devotion. In fact, the word that Jesus uses in our text here in Mark chapter 7 uh, does not refer to the bowing down, uh, but instead it just refers to giving reverence or doing acts of reverence. And there are a lot of things today as it was in his day that could be done as an act of worship. Now, as significant as all of these things are, and they are, our prayers are significant. Our gathering together in this place is significant. Our offerings, our preaching, our songs where we sing our praises to God, all of these things are significant. And as we do them, Because of their significance to us, we we think, we tend to assume this thing must be then. It must be. 
acceptable to God. Surely it counts for something. Surely our gathering together, our prayers, our singing, our praying, our preaching, surely, surely it counts with God. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Jesus would quote in our text, and we'll see that in a moment, from the prophet Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah's book had a lot to say. And God began that book in Isaiah chapter 1 by issuing kind of an indictment against his people because he, he famously said uh, uh, that the, uh, the donkey knows uh, its owner uh, the, and knows its master's crib. The, the ox knows its owner, but he says, my people are forgotten. God's people had forgotten who protected them and who provided for them and who took care of them. Now, they were still going to the temple. They were still going through all of their religious acts of devotion. But Isaiah would say, your heart is far from me. So we're going to look at what God said and how God spelled this out. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11, he said, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs of goats. When you come before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Their hands were defiled because, you see, their hearts were full of sin. Everything God mentions in this passage were things that God had required of them. He required them to celebrate the new moons and Sabbaths. He required them to come to the temple. He required them to offer up sacrifices. He required all of these things from them. But when they did this, and when they went through all of these motions, all the things that related to their worship, even the things that God had told them to do, when they did it without their heart being in it, God saw it. And so God would say, I am weary. I am weary of you trampling in and out of my house. And your heart's not right with me. So Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11 said God was tired of it. Malachi gave us a whole other look in Malachi chapter 1. A time when the people got tired of it. For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, God said, My name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit is contemptible. You also say, Oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord. You bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand? 
says the Lord. So there was a time in Isaiah chapter 1 when God said, I am weary of your worship and you trampling all over my court. What are you doing tramping in and out of my house in the shape you're in? But then there came a time when the people got tired of it all and they were just weary of it. It just, we're so sick of this. And then we have that passage in Isaiah that Jesus quoted, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with the lips, but they've removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. You're teaching as doctrines, Jesus said, the commandments of men. We can easily see then in this passage that Jesus warned them about how our worship can be in vain. And he identifies two things in this passage that would cause that. Their hearts, number one, were far from God. And number two, they were teaching a form of worship that God did not give them. So this morning we're going to look at these two things that God warned us about. How our worship can be in vain. First he talks about then an insincere worship. Hypocrites, he says. (laughs) Anytime you have a sermon that begins with calling everybody hypocrites, you know it's going to be a tough morning, I tell you. That's... uh... Jesus looked at that crowd. Have you got some idea about Jesus being just this nice, sensitive kind of person? And, and Jesus was nice and he was sensitive. But let me tell you something. Jesus could tell the truth. He looked at this crowd eyeball to eyeball, face to face. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. You know, still today... We have an expression that we call lip service and that we use that to describe what happens when a person is saying something that they don't intend to do or that they don't mean. We know their heart isn't in it. They're not real. And that expression comes from this passage. You draw near to me, God says, with your lips, but your heart is far from me. God gave us a lesson about that again in the Old Testament. When he sent the prophet Samuel down to the house of a man named Jesse, uh, he went there with a bottle of oil in his hands, and that was intended then to anoint the next king of Israel. Jesse had a lot of boys. One of them was Eliab. Eliab was tall. He was big and strong and muscular, a man's man, handsome. When Samuel looked at him, he said, This has got to be the next king of Israel. And God said to Samuel, nope. (laughs) You've got it all wrong, buddy. This is not the one. And in fact, he gave us that great principle in the... uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, or 1 Samuel chapter 16, he said, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. No, that was true of Samuel and Jesse's boys. You see, it wasn't Eliab, it was, it was the boy named David that he didn't even bother to bring into the lineup. God looks at the heart. And David, 
David was the one that had the heart of a king wrapped up in the life of a shepherd. God knew that. To this day, we could still say, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we can make things look pretty good, honestly. And, but God is going to look at the heart. And if what's on the inside is matching what's on the outside, then everything's fine. It, it, it's nothing wrong with, with dressing up or trying to look nice when you come to church. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as what's on the inside is matching what's on the outside. If we're doing this to honor God because we believe we ought to look nice when we come into His house and we want to honor Him, that, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But it can be wrong if our heart's not in it. When Jesus looked at the people that were in front of His face and called them hypocrites, He was using a word that had a common meaning uh, to the Greek people. You see, the hypocrites in their days were the actors. They were actors because they usually wore a mask and, and they portrayed a part. They were hypocrites. In their day, it was perfectly fine and acceptable to say, you are a great hypocrite. It was great for them to say, well, you're the best hypocrite that I've ever been around. You see, they used that word to describe their actors. And it was a perfectly good thing. But then it came to mean something else. That often happened in the New Testament because it was used uh, to portray a spiritual truth. And it came to refer then to somebody who was putting on a show. They were portraying themselves like they're wearing a mask. They're, they're saying that everything's fine, but inside it was not right at all. We'd be a little bit better, maybe it would take this message a little bit easier if Jesus would have said to these people, your hearts are a little bit removed from me. That's not what he said. Your hearts are far from me. Remember that Jesus was addressing a group of very religious people. They took their religious practices very seriously. In our day, we'd call them church people. They lived it. Their worship of God was the very center of their life. They re revolved everything around their life and revolved around their trying to please God and fulfill all of these things they had in their mind that would make that happen. And yet Jesus looked at this very, very religious people, very faithful people, and He says, Your hearts are far from Me. How far? Well, Simon Peter would address them on the day of Pentecost and tell them, You killed the Prince of Life. How far were their hearts from God? They killed Jesus. Remember, when they were looking at Jesus, they were looking at God in the flesh. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. When they were listening to Jesus, they were hearing the very words of God. This group of people came up from Jerusalem. They were a delegation, whether officially sent or whether they just made it up on their own. They were religious leaders, and they came there for the express purpose of checking Jesus out. They wanted to see what He was doing. And think about what He has been doing. He has healed multitudes of people. Multitudes. He fed thousands of people with biscuits and fish. He had raised the dead. He had cast out demons. 
They were bringing people from all over. Jesus didn't even have time to eat. They were pressing around him so much. They could see all of that. But instead, you know what they saw? They saw the disciples didn't wash their hands right before they ate. Now, some of you mamas might be thinking, well, I understand that. I can't get my kids to wash their hands either. Well, this had nothing to do with hygiene. Okay, there's no doubt they washed their hands. But you've got to understand, and in, in this uh, uh, Jewish uh, practice, it was all about purification, and they had established this elaborate ritual that they went through because they saw uh, eating as an act of worship, and there's nothing wrong with that. Eating is an act of worship. That's why we give thanks to God before we eat. Because we're thanking Him for that food that we have. We know that He has given us this day our daily bread. There's nothing wrong with treating eating as an act of worship. Uh, But they had taken it to such an extreme that they had all of these elaborate rituals. Had God given them that? No, they hadn't. And that's all they could see. They couldn't see the miracles. They couldn't hear all the teaching and preaching. They, they, They missed all of that. None of that meant anything. All they could see was that these disciples weren't doing things the way they ought to do it. You see, their hearts were far, far from God. How serious is it when we get to the place where we can go through the motions of worshiping God and yet our heart not be in it? Well, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus spoke to a church and He said this about them. It's a church at Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus spoke to a group of people who worked, who served with endurance, who stood against evil and stood against false doctrine. They had kept at it. They had not grown weary. They were being faithful in their service of of the Lord. And yet in all of their faithfulness and all of their patience and all of their doctrinal soundness and all of their standing against evil and therefore all of that right living, they had left their love for Jesus Christ. And that one debit wiped out all their credits. Jesus said, I am against you because you've left your first love. His message to them was repent or else. Specifically, he would say repent. And that means uh, to turn back. They had left their first love. They needed to return to him. And then he tells them to do the first works. And we don't even have to guess what those are because Jesus told us what the greatest commandments were. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And love thy neighbor as thyself. Love God, love people. You repent and do the first works. The most miserable person this morning in Cabot, Arkansas is not a lost person. The most miserable person in Cabot, Arkansas is a believer in Christ who has left their first love. You're miserable 
And I'm here to tell you something. All of the king's horses and all the king's men can't put your heart back together again. I'm here to tell you today that there is not a doctor on this planet that has a pill to fix what's wrong with you. Maybe you've turned to sin and you keep on doing it, but sin is never going to fill up that gnawing, aching emphasis that you feel in your hearts. What's wrong with you as a believer in Christ? You say, I'm miserable. Yes, you are. There's not a pill to fix it. But thank God Jesus can. What fixes it? Repent, Jesus said. And go back and start doing the first works, loving me and loving people. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, he told them how they had gotten into this trouble. And I alluded to this passage earlier, but I want to read it to you now. God said, God speaking, Isaiah 1 and 3. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trowel, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Now remember, God is not addressing that godless crowd living in the streets. God is addressing those people who had trampled His courts. Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, they had walked in and out and gave their offerings And all the time they were weighed down with sin. And they knew it. And God knew it. See, God knows when we're singing, I surrender all. But what we really mean is, I surrender some. God knows it when we pray, deliver us from evil. Even while we're making plans for our next excursion into evil with no intentions of turning away from it. God knows it. He knows when we sing, wherever you lead, I'll go. But what we mean is I'll go anywhere, Lord, as long as I don't have to move. God means what He says. Your heart isn't in it. Your worship is insincere. Therefore, it is in vain. Just because it makes you feel better doesn't matter. It's in vain. It accomplishes nothing unless our worship pleases God. I know that's a hard thing to preach. It's a hard thing to read. Remember, I've had to study this stuff all week. And if it's possible for you folks out there in the pew to get to the place where our worship is in vain because our heart's not right and God knows it, you know, it's just as possible for this guy standing up here. And when we begin to think about it and ask ourselves the question, is my heart in this? You know, we may have some repenting to do. Thank God. He gives us that option. Repent, Jesus says. 
and do the first works. Love me and love one another. So their insincere worship was one way that their worship could be in vain. The second way that their worship could be in vain is when they chose tradition over truth. Laying aside, he said, the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. Now the traditions that Jesus spoke of had a specific meaning to the people who heard it uh, because by the time that uh, uh, Jesus was there with them, uh, they not only had the law of Moses, and remember that was the law of the land, uh, but they also had the traditions of the elders. And these had been uh, decisions that had been passed down and handed down year after year after year, century after century. They had studied the law of Moses and they'd had opinions written about the law. And so those things were collectively referred to as the traditions of the fathers. It's not all that removed from America where we have the Constitution, uh, but then we have 200 and some odd years uh, of opinions handed down by judges. So it's not just the Constitution anymore. Now we've got all of these opinions and federal rules and stuff and I doubt you could fit all them books in this auditorium right now that have been written about all of the legal uh, decisions in the United States. Well, theirs wasn't quite that big, but it was pretty big. Uh, it led to the compilation of a book called the Mishnah. And then ultimately, because they decided that the Mishnah, which was all of the opinions that had been uh, laid down or handed down about the law of Moses, because that needed clarification too, they ended another uh, book called the Gemara, Gemara, not Gemara, Gemara. Uh, and both of them then were combined into something we've probably heard of, the Talmud, or the Talmud, as they would say it. It was uh, years, centuries of decisions and traditions it's not just the Word of God then anymore. It's all the opinions issued by all of these people in positions of authority. If that sounds somewhat familiar to you, it, it probably should. A whole branch of Christianity is known as Catholicism. Uh, all, of the, all of their centuries, their church traditions, all of the rulings of the Pope uh, have been compiled and added so that it's no longer just about what the Bible says. And in fact, oftentimes... Uh, they'll discourage their people from even reading the Bible because what they want them to be familiar with is all of the edicts and all of the church decisions and all the things. And, and they've ended up then with a whole lot of things that aren't in the Bible at all. And I'm not saying this to be critical of, of Catholics or Catholicism. I'm just being very factual with you. This problem that they had in Israel is not unfamiliar with us. Uh, where, where would you find purgatory in the Bible? It's not there. There's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. Where is anything in the Bible about Mary being co-redeemer? It's not in there. There's nothing in there about Mary being co-redeemer. And again, I'm not trying to offend you. Uh, where did all this stuff come from? Well, it was things that were added in. And over the years, then these things were added so that we've got the Scriptures. Yes, that's there. But then there's all of these different things that have been added into it. And please, again, I'm not trying to, to offend you. This was exactly what Jesus was dealing with. And it's exactly what multitudes of people have going on today. Other groups have men in authority who have visions and prophecies and these things then are considered authoritative and added to the rules 
uh, of the things that people have to do. It is what Jesus described in this passage when he said, You have taught the teachings, the traditions of men as doctrines, as authoritative rules governing how people are going to serve me and worship me. That's exactly the problem that he was dealing with in his day. He would mention a specific problem called Corban. I'm not, it's the last time I'll roll my R's because it's hard for a South Arkansas boy to roll his R's. Corban, I'll just say it that way. Corban was a practice where a person could essentially declare himself to be a nonprofit corporation and say that everything I have and everything I own is dedicated to God. But you see, that came about because of a practice that they had. See, there was no Social Security back then. Uh, so when you got old, uh, what did you do? When you got to where you couldn't farm anymore, you couldn't take care of the business anymore, what did you do? Well, you passed that along to your kids. And with that then came the expectation that the children would share the profits from the farm or share the profits from the business to take care of their parents. That's how it was done. And so while it sounds really good and really spiritual and godly for a person to say, well, I'm going to dedicate everything I have to God, and they'd make a big show of it. This is Corban. I'm dedicated to God. Everything I have, oh, it sounded all so spiritual. But Jesus looked at their hearts. And the only reason they were saying that was getting out of taking care of mom and dad. You see, the Bible says, honor thy father and thy mother. And that included taking care of them when they got old. How do we know that? It's also mentioned in Scripture. Paul would tell the young preacher Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, If any man provide not for his own and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That was in consideration of how that people would take care of widows. A woman who died without... A father without a, no longer had a husband. A husband died. A woman whose husband died and her son died had nobody to take care of them. Then the church could take care of them. But if she had a living son, it was his obligation to take care of his mom. And that's exactly what he says in this passage. A man who won't do that is worse than an infidel. Worse than an unbeliever. So we know that this was the practice that they had and we know that this is exactly what they were trying to get away from and Jesus didn't cut them any slack at all. So here they were talking about how that, you know, the disciples didn't wash their hands correctly. Which wasn't about hygiene or disease prevention. Remember I mentioned the Mishnah earlier. The Mishnah had 30 chapters about how to wash your hands. 30 chapters. I see some of your mama saying, mm hmm, yeah, uh huh, yeah, I understand. <laughs> I guarantee you, I, I, I grew up in a home, you know, where mom set a table every night and the family did a remarkable thing. We sat down at the table and ate together. I showed my hands every time. <laughs> Let me see your hands, son. Very few times did I not get the instruction, go wash them. Go wash them. I never did understand how Mama knew I was lying when she asked me, did you wash your hands? Yeah, Mama. How'd she know? (laughs) 
go wash them. But it wasn't at all about hygiene anymore. It was about that long, elaborate system of washing your clothes. Why did they love that so much? Listen to me today. It's a whole lot easier to wash your hands than it is to clean up your heart. It's a whole lot easier to wash a platter than it is to clean up your life. They had this cleansing and purification. They talked about it all the time. They gave rule after rule after rule after rule after rule and they never got around to teaching the Bible anymore. These things didn't have anything to do with the Word of God at all. And even though we know today that our works have nothing to do with getting us to heaven... And that wasn't the case in their day. They had a rabbi who actually taught that if you lived in Jerusalem, you went to temple and went, as the Bible said, as they were supposed to, and they washed their hands correctly, they could be sure they were going to go to heaven. But we know better than that. But you know what? We still like the feeling that comes from feeling like we've done what's right. We like going to church and being preached to, even when it convicts us. I've, I've noticed that. I've been doing this since I was 14 years old. And it's one of the great things. You know, I get up here and just preach some of the hardest sermons I could come up with to preach. And people come back and say, man, I enjoyed that. I know it convicted them because it convicted me. How do we enjoy that? But we enjoy even being convicted. We enjoy our times of worship. We enjoy our singing. We, we love. We love all of this. We do. They did too. possible for us to get all caught up in and learning and getting all the books and all the conferences and going to all the things we study and the things we like to study and the music we like to sing and we can get all caught up in it but forget that it's really all about loving God and loving people Bailey Smith was a, a great preacher, a great evangelist, a, a great pastor. I, I loved him. I loved his books. He once told a story of a woman who took a first aid course. She was one of those people that had a lot of problems when she saw blood and gory stuff. You know, it would just give her all sorts of trouble. So she, she took a first aid course. And she learned about emergency care. Not long after she graduated, she witnessed an accident and she immediately stopped her car thinking about her first aid course and got out to go over to help. And later when she recounted her experience to a good friend, she said, you know, I was so thankful that I had taken that first aid course because I remembered that if I'd sit down and put my head on my knees, I wouldn't faint. I hope you get the point of that story. She had learned a lot about first aid. But she didn't learn about first aid to help other people. You see, we can make this thing all about ourselves. We can. We're not immune to it just because we live on this side of Calvary. We know that because of what Jesus said at the end of the book in Revelation 2. It's possible for us, just as it was possible for them, to leave our first love. 
Now we might think, and I wish I could tell you that we can, that if we're just putting on a show, if we just get up on Sunday morning, put on our Sunday morning, go in the meeting clothes, and put on our Sunday morning, go in the meeting face, and we sit there and we smile and act like everything's okay, and we sing, and we go through and we've checked our religious box, and surely that counts for something. Surely it does. And, and then we'll convince ourselves. We'll say, well, you know, if I'm just putting on a show, surely I'll know. I'll know it. Right? Well, them old Pharisees back there in Jesus' day, don't you know they knew that it was all an act? No. When I read this passage, I see no indication at all that they knew it was all an act. God help us, folks. We can lie to ourselves for so long that our lie becomes a truth. We can live a lie so long that the lie becomes a truth. We think it's true. We can live a lie so long we don't know any better. We don't know anything else. We even say it, well, if I know my heart, But you know, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. Above all things, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? I know I've had a hard sermon for you today. I'm not going to apologize for it because I'm not sorry. After all, in a way, I'm just preaching Jesus' sermon and showing you how it applies to me and to all of you. The one thing I can say to you today is that y'all have been listening to it for about 40 minutes or so now, and I've been studying it for the <laughs> at least five days and really longer than that because I was looking at it a couple of weeks ago too. Jesus had a lot of hard things to say. And if that's all we knew about Jesus, it might be tough to read this book and go away saying, you know, that's my Savior. But you know, when we look at what He said and what He preached and what He taught, we look at it through the lens of what He did. When He went out on the cross and He suffered and bled and died for your sins and for mine. And we know then that He loves us like nobody else has loved us. Why? Because Christ died for my sins and for yours. He loves us. He loves us too much to let us get away with living a lie. In vain you do worship me, He said, because... You draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It's a great day for us to ask God to help us examine our hearts. That's what the psalmist did. Search me, O God. Try me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's wickedness in me.
God knows what we sometimes don't. I've had to think a lot about my love for God and my love for people this week. Maybe it's time for all of us to do the same. Let's stand together, please.